we're aiming for this really high standard and then we make a mistake, um, we beat ourselves up mercilessly. And that criticism can become, depending how you respond to it, that can that criticism can become very pervasive and um, highly mean, nasty even. And um, that can make people feel incredibly stressed out and depressed. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. of Wisdom for Wellbeing, and I am just delighted to be connecting with you in your earbuds, via your Bluetooth, however we are joining up today. I was reflecting that December 2019 is really when I started recording the first episodes for Wisdom Wellbeing that launched in January 2020, having no idea what was ahead for the world. You know, with every intention, I wanted to put forth an evidence-informed podcast supporting you in cultivating skills to survive and then ultimately, you know, to thrive, to create a life of purpose, of meaning, where we could integrate modern-day psychological strategies with the wisdom that comes from embodied practices such as mindfulness and yoga, you know, also known as mindful movement. And it was so needed, wasn't it really? You know, we moved into this state of unknown for a lot of us at different points of overwhelm and we're still navigating it. So I am grateful for each and every one of you who has tuned in and also shared the word of this podcast. It makes such a difference in terms of expanding this podcast reach, in terms of sharing this offering, these skills with individuals who need it. I am so passionate about making sure we have access to practical tools and strategies that are backed by science because we can invest a lot of energy, a lot of resources when we are struggling in things that may not ultimately surface and we all know that when we aren't in a grounded place in a place of alignment of centeredness we don't always make our best decisions so i want to maintain the quality of the offerings here and if you do have any friends family members co-workers who could benefit from a little bit of wisdom a little bit of inspiration education please recommend or share this podcast with them and particularly send off today's episode to anyone you know that might be struggling with perfectionism we have the honor of speaking with jennifer kemp today Today is actually a really special day for Jennifer and for all of us who experience perfectionistic traits because today is the day of the ACT workbook for perfectionism's launch. Jennifer wrote the ACT workbook for perfectionism to support 
those with perfectionistic tendencies, experiences, challenges in building one's best imperfect life using powerful acceptance and commitment therapy and self-compassion skills. If you've been listening to Wisdom for Wellbeing, you will know, you know, the terms acceptance and commitment therapy and self-compassion. And if not, if you are new, welcome. We are going to be diving into what these fancy terms mean today. First, though, I'd like to introduce you to Jennifer. Jennifer is a clinical psychologist who has a special interest in perfectionism from both her own experience and through the work she does with clients. Jennifer integrates acceptance and commitment therapy, what we call ACT, clinical behavior analysis and exposure with self-compassion in her work. She's actually from Adelaide, South Australia, so exactly where I am based, and she sees clients struggling with chronic illness, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorders, trauma, grief, and loss. She has a background in leadership coaching and facilitation and provides supervision to clinical registrars and experienced practitioners. As mentioned, she is the author of the ACT workbook for perfectionism, which we are celebrating today. And in today's conversation, we'll be talking about why perfectionism is a transdiagnostic experience. That means that it doesn't necessarily fit as a diagnosis in and of itself, but it is closely aligned and integrated within the experience that we might see in different areas of struggle that we have. And it's really this experience of never being good enough. I don't know if that resonates with you. It certainly resonates with me. And we talk through the five core processes of perfectionism, as well as the role that self-compassion might have in healing and this journey towards healing and tackling the big bad fears that underlie perfectionism. Now, without further ado, let me introduce you to Jennifer now. So Jennifer, welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really curious to hear, like to, yeah, chat to you about perfectionism and what I've been doing and it's going to be really interesting. And you've been doing some amazing things and in fact... We are, I guess, celebrating the launch of the workbook for perfectionism, the ACT workbook for perfectionism. So you have written an amazing tool for those of us who experience perfectionism and those who maybe um, live with, are in close proximity to perfectionists who want to learn more. Can you just give us a bit of an overview about the book first and then we'll dive into perfectionism in more detail? Yeah, sure. Um, and I, at this, at, as we're speaking right now, I don't have a physical copy in my hand, so I'm really excited to have that because by, um, by the time this goes to air, hopefully I'll be holding one and I wish I could hold one up for you. Hopefully we'll all um, be holding one. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be nice. Um, I wrote this book uh, for New Harbinger based on a combination of my own personal experience with perfectionism, which I've struggled with across my life. So that's definitely woven into the book. But the theory of it is very much is based on the science. So I have um, written a book that uses acceptance and commitment therapy and techniques from compassion focused therapy. So teaching self-compassion, which is just I've, I have personally found and my clients find just so helpful in working with perfectionism and changing the way 
uh, the way that they, yeah, the way that they sort of approach perfectionistic goals and the way that they speak to themselves in their inner dialogue. And <clears throat> there's kind of, as you've got work through the book, it's really almost end-to-end -end how I might work with someone with perfectionism. So there's whole chapters in there that are kind of like almost, um, my personal favourite I think is chapter seven, but I, which I shouldn't play favourite today, but I'll kind of do. <laughs> it, it's like I want to get to chapter seven. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that focuses on self-criticism, which is such a huge part. And so really the whole chapter is kind of end-to-end -end how I would frame an intervention, how I would work with someone end-to-end -end with that. So and the, the chapter before kind of sets that up and the chapter after kind of like what do we do with that and yeah so I really um I'm really hoping there's some useful things in there for people and I think a lot of us can empathize with you know perfectionistic tendencies and when you say self-criticism there are very few people if any that I know who don't have uh, a critical part that exists in inside themselves you know and, and calls them out on the regular and that's very distressing so I'm I'm really keen to get to chapter seven myself and to learn more <laughs> about that you mentioned that it's the way that you would work with clients would you mind just giving people a bit of an introduction as to who you are you know people might might not yet know you and haven't got their hands on the book so um you're a therapist based in Adelaide can you give us a, a bit more detail yeah I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm based in Adelaide Australia and I've been working with perfectionism probably for the last 10 years in clients, but personally myself, I sort of, I had this moment back in 2011 where I went to a workshop by Professor Tracy Wade, who is a very well-known psychologist here in Adelaide. She was running a one-day workshop on perfectionism as like a transdiagnostic process. So a process that cuts across um, all sorts of different mental health problems from eating disorders through to anxiety, depression, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, like all sorts of different problems that people have. And perfectionism is a, is a factor that can play out in any one of those. There's dozens of them. So this was a technical workshop for, for psychologists and I was a psychology student come back to do my master's at that point. And I walked in the door and she was playing this um, this song by Rachel Ferguson, Never Good Enough. And she was sort of playing that as her introduction. And I, my eyes just completely filled with tears. It was, it was one of those huge penny drop moments because I've been struggling with perfectionism my whole life, but I hadn't really worked out that that was the glue that had, had sort of woven those problems together. Um, it can be almost a little bit of a taboo to talk about your own mental health when you're a psychologist. You're supposed to have your shit together, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I had an eating disorder in my late teens. Well, I had I went on a strict diet in my late teens, which turned into an eating disorder because that's how it happens. Yeah, that's and the um, I had anxiety in my 20s and um, probably just one major depressive episode in there as well. And and then I'd had problems like with work, like I had lots of really interesting jobs, but I really struggled with getting feedback and um, when, it, you know, that sort of performance feedback about how you can improve, I found I would spend days just kind of beating myself in my head, up in my head about it. So I really, um, really kind of struggled with that. So when I came back through and did clinical psychology, because I've been working as a psychologist for a while, I really focused in on that with my thesis. And then since I've been working with people, 
one-on-one um, -on -one, um, and in groups and also psychologists. I speak to a lot of psychologists, trainee psychologists, registrars about this issue as well. Um, yeah, I just love it. And it, it's so important. You mentioned that it's it's this glue that holds a lot of challenges, pieces together. So how how can someone kind of notice if they have perfectionist tendencies? If they're sitting here and going, oh, I, I think this is resonating with me. You know, I know the critical part. You know, I know that maybe I struggle when I do get feedback or lament over things when I feel like I'm not doing good enough. How would we how would we know that, OK, this is perfectionism? Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's five core processes that I look for when I'm when I'm looking at my clients because there's stereotypes out there of what perfectionism can look like. You know, the kind of type A overachiever that's that's your perfectionist, but actually it can look like completely the opposite, where people get really stuck, unable to do anything because they can't kind of do it right. Um, so there's a sort of huge spectrum of how it can look in people. So I look for five processes. I look for that setting of really high personal standards, um, setting really high standards for yourself. And I would say straight away that there's no problem with setting high standards for yourself. I would never want to take that away from anyone and I, none of my clients or friends would ever want to drop that either. The problem comes when those standards become kind of rigid and where it's like, I must always get an A or I must have a perfect GPA. Or I, I, for a psychologist, it might be, you know, I must always help all my clients in every session, which is, you know, sessions are, every session is different. And this standard is really, really hard to achieve. So having these expectations that are set so high kind of sets us up for failure or constantly feeling like we're failing. So um, the second process I look for is really a strong fear of failure in people. Um, where people are um, like deeply worried about that and have a kind of a, an inner experience where they feel intense shame and really uncomfortable if they were to make a mistake. And when I talk about failure, I mean in the broader sense, like um, uh, where a fa failure could be any kind of mistake from locking your keys in the car, where I've had people beating themselves up for an entire day because they locked their keys in their car, I know. Um, look at the new expression on your face. I know it's just like, oh, it's so sad, um, isn't it? Because this is, you know, this is, I think we as humans are constantly making mistakes, you know, for doing anything in life, you know, from, from going out to the car. Um, so that's, that's really sad to think that these little mistakes cause such emotional pain and real distress. Yeah, really. And um, also like mistakes, like tiny social errors or maybe I forgot to email someone or text someone for their birthday or maybe I just said something jumped in a little awkwardly you know in a conversation and then beating myself up for this or do they, they don't really like me or so the, I think a lot of it is in a like social we worry about social mistakes sometimes more than any other kind of mistake I think so there's a fear of making that sort of mistake where people feel like I know when I make a mistake um, and I'm much better at making mistakes now, which is really a weird thing to say, isn't it? Well, that's I, I great because it gives us hope. <laughs> okay, we can get there too, right? <laughs> I accept that I just make mistakes like all day, every day. And I'm so much better now going, oh, they were like, stuffed that up, didn't I? So, and kind of moving on quickly. Um, it's actually freed me up to do a hell of a lot more things in my life and try like write a book, which 
I was terrified. I've always wanted to, but I was terrified of doing. Like it just seemed impossible because how would I get it right? Um, so we do a lot of things to avoid those mistakes. So the next thing I'm looking for, so we've got high standards and also that tendency to keep setting them higher, like raising a benchmark, that fear of failure. There's this kind of um, doing a lot of things. The third one is doing a lot of things to avoid failing. So that might getting be getting stuck in loops of checking our work a lot or avoiding some social situations because we feel that we think we might be a bit awkward or um, seeking reassurance. And here I would say that there's a slippery slope from perfectionism into OCD. I do sometimes see treat people perfectionism. It takes a little while before we both realize that it's actually a form of OCD called just right OCD, where they have to have everything right all the time. And that's the obsession. So there's just a slippery slope when it comes to these kinds of what would be considered compulsions in OCD. So just for listeners, um, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, just, just in case anyone's not familiar with the terminology there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, awesome. And um, then there's the this self-criticism. And sometimes in therapy, time is limited. It's always limited. You know, you don't, you just, I never have like two years worth of weekly sessions with people to sort of slowly work through these issues. So if I'm looking at what to target with people, self-criticism will always be one of those things. Because when we make a mistake and we're aiming, we're aiming for this really high standard and then we make a mistake, um, we beat ourselves up mercilessly. And that criticism can become, depending how you respond to it, that, can, that criticism can become very pervasive and um, highly mean, nasty even. And um, that can make people feel incredibly stressed out and depressed. So it's, it's just horrible living with that kind of thinking in your head. And I guess the final thing that I look for is that, that these problems are actually causing bigger problems in someone's life. So some, we can be perfectionistic and for it to be really generally helpful for us. Like there's a kind of helpful side of perfectionism where I'm striving and set by standards. I enjoy doing that, going that extra mile. Um, but, I, but I feel like I have freedom to do that. It's, I'm not stuck on a... Like I have to, I must, uh, I just enjoy it. And that's sort of that helpful side of perfectionism. It's the unhelpful side. That last process is all about like, what are the bigger problems this is causing in your life? Okay, so it's the, the sense that, you know, these, these some of these tendencies might be helpful, but some of them lead to bigger problems. And, you know, particularly that self-criticism when you mentioned that it's all day, every, I mean, we can't get away from ourselves, can we? So oh, yeah. it makes sense that that's a particularly painful element. Yeah, absolutely. That. And, and the, those kinds of behaviors where you're stuck trying to avoid failing can keep you really, really stuck in your life as yeah. well. Like stop you trying new things. I never, I'm not naturally coordinated person. So I never played sport as a kid because I couldn't do it well straight away. And um, or maybe at all. <laughs> and <clears throat> I enjoy doing some of that stuff now. I don't still don't play team sports because it's I think that, that ship has sailed. But um I uh yeah, I, I avoided and hated the, and sort of doing sport because of that, because I couldn't do it well and I found that really shameful and and embarrassing so I think it stops you trying a lot of things 
Um, I also, I did art all the way to year 12, but I always would overwork my art to try and make them kind of perfect. So I think I wrecked a lot of it. So it can kind of, <clears throat> in creative jobs and creative processes, it can kind of nail it down and make it perfect, kind of takes the spark out of stuff too, takes the joy out of it. So I think it has a lot of these sort of subtle implications for your life as well. And you mentioned so that there's these two sides that often when we think of perfectionists, we might think of that like high achiever. But when you're kind of describing, you know, not playing team sports, not trying things or overworking your art, you mentioned that there was this other side to perfectionism where people were too nervous or scared or wouldn't do things because they couldn't get it right. So when we see someone who may not um, not appear to be striving or be you know, I say in air quotes, overly successful in their life, that could be the side of perfectionism as well. So we can't necessarily know from the outside what's going on or what's happening internally for someone. Is that? that kind yeah, of absolutely. I've worked a lot and still work a lot with chronic illnesses um, in my clients. I work a lot with people who are struggling with weight and eating disorders. And there's a way of setting goals around your health, for example, like setting these sort of perfect goals where you know, when you say to someone, what, what's one thing you could you could do to sort of start getting back on track around your health? And they'll say, I'm going to go for a walk every day, starting today. It's like, well, that's not going to work, is it? Because it's, you're already immediately going to fail that goal. It's going to be raining. You're going to be at work. It's going to be busy. Someone's birthday. You're not clearly not. It's not achievable. So that all or nothing way of approaching goals keeps people really stuck not being able to start at all because they go for a walk but the next day they forget and then they fail and then that constant feeling of failing stops you doing it altogether how does this develop so Jennifer like I guess how do we become perfectionists is that something we're born with is that something that's a result of you know different experiences interactions when we're growing up where where do these tendencies come from we might be born with it I I really I can't sort of say whether there's some there's some aspects that are kind of baked into us I I certainly seems to be in families but I focus on the element of it that certainly a lot of it is learned and it's learned not as a child from the people that are around us and we see our own parents perhaps struggling with their high standards um, and the way that they react to them and, um, and our teachers. And, and, you know, we were chatting earlier about how in psychology, in the training for psychology, they're kind of almost screening for perfectionism. So there's certain careers and industries where it seems like you need to just strive. Medicine might be another. So, you know, you have to strive so hard to get in that that kind of overworking and um, pushing yourself really hard is definitely like rewarded. But I also think it the biggest process I would work with in people in therapy would be the kind of short-term reinforcement loops. So say, for example... Um, I have a big assignment to do and I'm kind of nervous about it because it just seems like so big and I'm not really clear what I'm going to do or what they're really wanting. So I I sort of think, right, it's time to sit down and do my assignment. And I go, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I kind of come close to my desk and then I go, oh, shit, that's just like, I might just go for the washing on, right? Or I might just 
Um, that's just, I'll, I'll try later on. I'm not quite ready. I, I'll go and watch some YouTube or Netflix or something and I'll come back at it later when I'm, when I'm ready. That's like a little short-term relief. So just in that moment when I distract myself and move away from the thing that's scaring me, which is this assignment, I feel a sense of relief. So that whatever is like reinforcing our behavior makes it more common, makes it more likely to happen. And I'll actually talk through this with clients. So there's so many of these things. Um, I need to send an email, but I'm worried about how they're going to receive it. So I kind of check it and I recheck it and I rewrite it. And each time I do that, I get a little bit of relief that maybe it's going to be okay or maybe they'll be you know, okay about it. So we do a lot of that checking. We check a lot in our heads as well. Like, did I say it right? Did I, did I offend them? So we're doing a lot of that checking too. So each time we're doing that, we're, we're kind of moving away from the thing that's scary to us and that is reinforced. So I think these, these unhelpful behaviour patterns that, this sort of, that can keep us stuck imperfectionism I've learned mostly that's yeah. really interesting I always joke with, I joke with my partner because I'm not a um, naturally tidy person if we can put it like that <laughs> I'm a little bit perhaps chaotic I like to think of it as creative chaos but anyways it is I want nice. to leave things out Caitlin so you know I like to leave things out in case I'm going to need them later right maybe that's what it is <laughs> but when I when I was studying and I had an assignment do like the house would be immaculate yeah. like totally immaculate and it was a real sign that I was getting close to a deadline that everything mm -hmm. else was clean and like needed to be cleaned so it's yeah. interesting that you describe this real feedback loop that there's reinforcement and kind of like stepping away and I suppose perhaps also trying to make sure the environment is perfect to sit down and do the perfect thing oh absolutely yeah so for some people um Perfectionism doesn't affect us equally across our lives. So we might have a messy house, but present perfectly when we go out to see people or um, really put a lot of effort into the reports we're writing at work. But it's complete, like our diet and exercise is chaos. So um, there, it definitely doesn't affect you equally. And That's important to know. That's mm. really important to know. Yeah, so we, I think you've got, to, you've got to work on the areas that hurt the most, right? The areas that, are, that you're struggling with most. There's no point. If, if you're doing lots of work on those reports, work, and it's fine, you're not working late and your boss is happy with you and you're enjoying it, fine. <laughs> but if the chaos in your personal life is, or that because you're stuck on these, like, I can't, like, this... I have clients who, and it's definitely involved in hoarding, is one of the one of the areas that perfectionism kind of overlaps and feeds. Is looking at a pile of things to tidy up, and like, how do I put this away perfectly? How can I get this organized? Stops you from tackling it at all. So um, we can definitely have a chaotic home and a really successful career, and. <laughs> and of course parenting is another area isn't it mm. parenting is such an area where we can try and I've definitely fallen into this trap I'm trying to be like a really good parent you know trying to set really high standards for myself around parenting and constantly failing honestly <laughs> Thank you for sharing that because I think that's important for parents to hear as well you know and I, I suppose there's um probably overlap here with some of the research evidence around 
like circle of security shows that like 30% attunement rate that you actually don't have to be showing up and be present perfectly 100% of the time that it's this 30% rate. Um, So I think that's really important that you highlight that we are all those of us doing the parenting journey kind of failing at it constantly because otherwise when we look and see other parents out there there might be this assumption that people are somehow doing doing parenting perfectly which research would suggest is not a thing. Oh, and social media is a shocker for that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I had to mute a couple of people during the first round of the pandemic because they kept posting up all this. Today, I spent the day with my children, like planting vegetables in our veggie patch. And then we went for a walk to the local, like, um, you know, book library on the street kind of thing. And I'd be just like, my kids spent the whole day on screens. I have no idea what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> we survived. <laughs> Feeling like a complete failure as a parent. And I just had to maybe put a bit of a mute on that because um, it was, yeah, it got really distressing for a while there. I was like, how am I supposed to be a parent? But I actually have work to do. And um, yeah, really hard. So you put a mute on it. So talk talk me through, like, how do we manage when these, these things come up and we catch ourselves in these like short-term feedback loops, whether it's, you know, uh, an assignment or work project is due and suddenly we're cleaning out our fridge or whatever it may be. How do we, how do we step back from these things that are clearly causing problems or interrupting our life? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think the first thing is just, is to do exactly that, to step back and slow down and think, what is it that I'm really scared of here? What is it that I'm trying to avoid by doing this unhelpful thing? The, the outcome. Sometimes um, kind of from the OCD world, I have this term called the big bad, uh, which I find quite helpful in perfectionism too. So it's uh, this idea. So the big bad actually comes from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Some of your listeners may be familiar with that. Um, I was never I, a I fan. am a Buffy fan. So. Are you a fan? <laughs> I okay. haven't seen it on for years, though. Oh, it's probably on some platform somewhere. Yeah, actually. I need to. I need to look it up. So after this episode, this is <laughs> going to be my avoidance technique. I'll put on Buffy and like, clean my kitchen or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I didn't really watched it. I have to say at the time, but Buffy was always fighting this sort of one evil person that kept popping up in different ways. In um, Doctor Who, that was the master. In Sherlock Holmes, that's Moriarty there's uh, in the marvel movies it's thanos so i've only seen some of those movies so there's this always this kind of constant like evil bad guy bad person kind of force and um in a way this thing this fear that we're running running away from all the time is um is our you know our big bad our bad guy so this you can sort of think of it as like, for me, it was like fear of being or being seen to be incompetent was a really big thing, which has led to me to do hundreds and hundreds of hours of training. And I have a huge library of books, most of which, almost all of which I haven't completely read. But it's nice um, to know they're there. <laughs> <laughs> it's so comforting to know that they're there. And um, there's, uh, so working out what it is is really important because that I think that fear is actually controlling our behavior. So we're doing a sort of a version of like running, fighting or hiding from that behavior. So what you might call it like a fight or flight response to that behavior in a sense. So we're either trying to um, get away from that or which might be like I'm withdrawing and I'm not doing it at all, 
or we're fighting it, like trying, checking a lot more or working harder or um, we're kind of going completely frozen. <laughs> so I can't do anything at all because I might fail in some way. So it's sort of one combination of those. So I think it's really helpful to pause and think about that because ultimately we have to do the thing that scares us. You know, we have to find a way to get into that space where we really like can do that thing that scares us. And the more often we can do that, the easier it will get. If we do it in a way where we're not just trying to white knuckle our way through this process, if we can get into this space of, um, I know this is going to feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't, say an example I hear all the time would be, I haven't texted my friends for ages. I feel like a really bad friend, but now I feel really nervous to text them in case they're upset with me, that kind of scenario. Um, so it's like actually sending that text and doing that in a way because it's important to us, because those friends are important to us. And even though it feels uncomfortable, we might feel a bit sick in our stomach or a bit tight, tense or tight, something like that, we give it a go. Um, I have had people also sending texts with deliberate spelling mistakes in them because that's, I don't know if that would be one for you. Oh, like, I, I can't spell. I've got some dyslexia. Oh, it's okay then. <laughs> but it's really funny because, <laughs> because people like I think um, my, my father-in-law, for instance, I've heard him kind of um, call out spelling errors and I'm always like, oh, no. <laughs> me all the time thank goodness for the red lines but um but it's it's really interesting because it's something that I I know I personally struggle with and I'm hyper aware that that's something that would be what I feel would be ill perceived so when I am sending texts or emails I'm always looking and if my little red line function I don't know what that's called spell check I suppose on my email seems like it's off I do feel very nervous Mm, absolutely yeah that's that'd be one where like sending a text for people that replaces your and your you know different versions of that or I've had people almost want to shrink inside the chair with fear of like sending a text like that or sending it without spelling check it you know spelling checking it because Mm. I think if we can sort of get comfortable with making small mistakes sometimes the bigger mistakes become you know easier and it does take time I've been working on this myself for about 10 years um, the other thing I would say is that self is that learning to be more kind, being kinder to yourself is probably the other, the biggest thing. So I worked on kind of my standards and making mistakes for quite a long time, but the final piece of the puzzles when I did a workshop, well, it's probably not the final piece, but the biggest piece, um, back in 2016 with a now a really good friend, David Flanders from, uh, from Scotland, he came over and did a workshop on working with chronic illness at a, um, a conference in Melbourne. And we did this passengers on the bus uh, exercise for the first time, which I use all the time with people now, like all the time in therapy. But there was this part of it where I have this critic that's on board critiquing me, where I'm not only sort of, uh, I'm used to that, but I kind of could see where they were coming from. I could kind of see that there was a good intention yeah. they wanted me to do well and it's it helped me sort of hear it for what it is it's like it's like the world's worst motivational speaker you know it's trying to help you do well or keep you safe 
but at the same time telling you off. <laughs> Which is a way of doing it, right? It, that's, I think a really beautiful, a beautiful notation of what's going on, that there's like an intentionality there, but that the um, execution, execution isn't helpful. And I always think of like a little kid's t-ball coach, like, you know, one, I picture him in red, looks like Donald Trump down yelling at the kid yeah. to, to motivate the child versus one that's like, you know, maybe a bomb or someone. I don't know why I'm referencing America now. I'm actually Canadian. I just want to clarify with my accent. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, like I picture these two different, um, two different, coaches but with that so you kind of were like okay well the intentionality here is good even though the execution is mean and maybe not helpful would you mind just talking us through the passengers on the bus because I actually am racking my brain and I don't actually think we've used that metaphor on any of these episodes so I can't even I can't even direct the listeners anywhere else sure sure I love this metaphor it's a classic uh, acceptance and commitment therapy metaphor um, and there's various different versions um passengers in the boat or whatever, but I just stick with the original. So it's it goes sort of like this. Um, if you can imagine that you are the driver of a bus and this is your bus and only you can be the driver, that you set the direction and the speed, this bus, uh, and you're driving it down the road across your life, you're driving down the road towards a life that is really rich and meaningful. It's full of all the things that are meaningful for you in your life. So... For many people, um, that might be like a loving relationship or being a good parent, being a kind and patient or fun parent might be a better way of putting it. Might be um, getting us having a sense of achievement, helping others. Like a life that doesn't matter kind of how you are doing it per se, not setting goals here to achieve. This is like the kind of life that you're living where at the end of your life, they write on, you know, your tombstone, you know, was an amazing person who cared for many people and left a, left a beautiful, loving family behind, that kind of life, right? And we're um, trying to get down the road. And what happens is that across our life, various passengers get on the bus with us. Now, some of those passengers are um like lovely lovely sort of memories and experiences that we've had and we might kind of lean over the back of the back of our seat and chat to those passengers and um, they don't cause us any trouble and we have other passengers that get on that causes a whole bunch of grief and one of these is this perfectionistic critic this is the passenger that gets learned sometime early in life and then becomes our passenger we take it on ourselves so we start talking about passenger, like listening to this passenger and it starts critiquing everything that we're saying. You shouldn't do that. You can't go there. You're terrible at this. Watch out. They'll notice that you don't know what you're doing. Um, it has this constant dialogue. Now, how we respond to that passenger really, really matters because there's a few different ways that people respond to these passengers and your listeners may find, recognize themselves in one or more of these. Sometimes we do all of them. Sometimes we just do kind of one. The first one, the first way we can respond to this passenger. And when I'm working with people, we kind of pull this passenger out and we kind of chat about it. It's kind of fun, um, kind of weird fun. You know, it's the sort of fun that psychologists have anyway. Um, <laughs> and... Um, uh, so the first thing that people do is they do they believe it? Do they believe everything that this passenger says? 
because this, um, it, and it's an interesting question because a lot of people suddenly realize that they just believe everything that this part of themselves, this inner voice, this passenger says. Um, but we have a choice about that. And uh, if we believe everything it says and we do what it says, like don't call that person, they might be unhappy with you, then we don't call. And how much progress are we making down the road when we're doing what this passenger says? So most people will tell me they're not making much at all. They kind of get, their bus gets really slow, really stuck. Another way, a really common way people um, to uh, respond to their passengers is to fight with it. But interestingly, though, the only way of fighting with it is to take your hands off the wheel and actually turn around and like get into a fight. So that's where the passenger is saying, you're no good at this, you've stuffed it up. And you're going, no, I really can do it. I'm, I, you know, and trying to defeat it with logic or argue back. And the problem is that when you're doing that, you don't have your eyes on the road and you don't have your hands on the wheel. So I'm always curious about how much progress people feel like they're making down the road when they're doing that too, because that feels like it's the right thing to do. Like we should somehow be able to defeat this passenger, but really um, I've never met anyone who actually has. So the thing is, it just keeps coming back. You can defeat it for a little while. It may be quiet and sound for a bit, but sooner or later it's back saying, yeah, but don't forget your shit is. Um, so. <laughs> Well, mine is anyway. <laughs> and the, the third way people respond to their passenger that's also unhelpful is to this phrase, whiten up all their way through. So it's like where they grip the wheel and they're trying to just keep that passenger quiet, like almost like they're sort of squishing it down in the seat next to them. It's going to shut up, shut up, leave me like alone. I'm going to drive, I'm going to drive. And they sort of force themselves down the road. And, you know, people do make progress down the road that way, but it's slow and it's exhausting. Because we can't ultimately, we don't actually control this passenger. The first thing we need to do is let go of trying to control it. Because as the more we try and control this inner voice, the more it actually ends up controlling us. And the more we end up, energy we end up putting into it. So what I'm teaching in therapy for people is a whole different way. Of, de of dealing with the passenger, which is this sort of ability to keep your eyes on the road and hands on the wheel and to be able to then say, like, yep, when the passenger gets loud, which inevitably it will, it's more of an attitude of like, yep, thank you. I know, I know you're trying to help, but I'm going to drive anyway. I'm going to do the thing that's important to me. And I'm going to keep going, um, even though you might be, even though you might be um, like really loud and really mean right now. And there's this, over time, the more we can do that, sometimes the passenger gets louder, sometimes it quietens down to the, all right, then on you go. Sometimes it, but we don't know. And that's the thing. We have to drive anyway, even though we don't know what the passenger is going to do. So that's the passengers in the bus kind of metaphor, and we can actually build a lot off that. Yeah, well, that's I think really useful for all of us to kind of go, okay, well, what 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 do we do? You know, do yeah. do we sort of turn around and fight with the passenger? Do we buy into what the passenger is saying? Do we light knuckle? You know, as we're kind of uh, checking in with our tendencies, and as you know, there might be different times, different ways of relating. How often do we actually practice? letting go as you speak and, and kind of 
greeting that passenger with you highlighted a little bit of compassion. You know, I know you're trying to help me and <laughs> I'm going to keep driving towards the things that are important. So a couple of things struck me, knowing what's important and where you want to be going, what you want to be creating in life is hugely important. And then practicing those skills of Whenever anyone says, let it go, I have a toddler. I'm like frozen, <laughs> just like yeah. Elsa, let it go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Acceptance, whatever we want to call it. Kind of finding a different way of relating with the passenger. I know that, you know, we can't get into all of the amazing uh, practices and skills that I know we'll be showing up in the workbook, but is there one, is there one tip or trick or just reminder that you might be able to provide listeners for how they might cultivate that compassion for themselves or cultivate that I think compassionate acceptance or you know that yeah. uh, gentleness to that yeah. so when we when we're compassionate towards other people one of the first things we feel is is like uh, we focus on is wow what does that person need right now like we have a motivation to help when some when we see someone struggling in the streets you know we walk past someone who's just dropped all of their bags and we decide we're going to leave, reach down and help them pick, pick, you know, get themselves together. There's compassion there. We can have compassion in that situation. We have this motivation to help. So the first thing we can do when we're struggling is, is ah, you know, it's beating yourself up when you're struggling. It's kind of like an amplifier for how your struggle. It just makes it worse. It, it sends you on a downward spiral. So I'm hooking and going, okay, I'm struggling right now. What do I need? You know, what, what would help me in this moment? And it's, look, it's not like self-care and the stereotypes of bubble baths and maybe meditating for three hours might be nice, but it doesn't always happen in our lives, right? So if what I need right now might be just to take a few deep breaths, to sort of center myself, to calm down. And the other thing in there is the tone of voice that you use when you're doing that is really, really important. So we can actually practice having speaking to ourselves and maybe it's helpful to start out loud with a sort of warmer tone of voice, that more compassionate coach, you know, the one that says, hey, buddy, I can see you're really struggling here. Have you thought about holding the bat this way? Let's give this a try. Um, let's give it a good swing, great job, that kind of coach, so to be that for yourself in that moment. What do I need? How, you know, what, how can I support myself right now? And it, it's acknowledging that you're struggling. That's the key part there. And that that's not a failing, that that's something you can recover from. Um, but it has to start with that, that acknowledgement that you're struggling and that you need help. I think that's the first step. It's really beautiful. So listeners, noticing that you're struggling and acknowledging that you need help. And the way you've phrased it to Jennifer is you're showing up for yourself because you're struggling, you're suffering. You haven't said anything that there's any intentionality of ridding the suffering, uh, the suffering part of me. It's just showing up because you're suffering, you know, practicing that tone of voice and being there with yourself. And that that's, that's the practice. That is absolutely, there's a warmth in that. There's, a, I guess, a non-judgment, you would say, in that. Like, I'm suffering and that is what it is in this moment. Um, I'm struggling because I, maybe I feel like I'm a failure or I've made a mistake. Um, I'm going to take a few deep breaths. I'm going to just give myself some time or some space to sort of let that settle. Like, whatever it is I need in that moment, 
Uh, maybe I need outside help. Maybe I can just do this for myself because I can sort this out, but I need to just slow down and, and work it through. And there's a non-judgment around that, isn't there, that we sort of accept our struggle as something that's happening to us without needing to that to be wrong. Somewhere. That's we all really struggle. Good. Really connecting when you say we all struggle too, isn't it? That we're not alone in this, that this is part of the human experience. We're all in this together. We all suffer and struggle. And I think that's really nice that you looked earlier, you know, if someone was on the street and they dropped their groceries or whatever it may be, how can we be compassionate towards them, turning that, that lens back towards ourselves? Yeah, we're not trying to do that. It isn't, this is not an easy thing. I think it takes a lot of practice to be yeah. kind to yourself like that. We can even do yoga and be mean to ourselves the whole way through. You know, I'm not holding this position right. I look stupid in this position. Look at my leg. I can't bend this far. I've done that. Like I'm oh. doing yoga, but I'm completely criticizing myself the whole time. So how can I kind of practice that? I'm, I'm doing the best I can do right now and um, actually dive into the experience of that. It's quite a challenge. And a beautiful challenge, a beautiful practice for us, us to cultivate. So whether it's maybe well, sticking a sticky note on our computer screen, if we're showing up there a lot or on the mirror, something to maybe remind us or prompt us to, to notice when we're suffering, when we're struggling and to practice. And I think listeners going through sort of the five tendencies going, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe I am experiencing perfectionism. Here's a starting point. And then how can listeners learn more? So where, um, where can they connect with you and where should they go to grab your workbook? Sure. Um, I have a website. It's jenniferkemp.com.au. And what I've been doing sporadically, I wish it was a little more often, but these things are like that, aren't they? Is I've been putting up um, a bunch of different resources. So if you're a psychologist, there's stuff there you can use with clients. If you're, there's sort of, it's a bit of a mixture. There's stuff on there that also will be interesting for people. There's a couple of exercises on there. Um, the two teachers metaphor, which is basically the teacher's version of the coach <clears throat> metaphor you gave us earlier. Uh, it's almost identical. So I'll find that and directly link in the show notes, listeners, to make it easy for you. But how perfect. Yeah. There's a whole handout on that you can read through, and it's like a little exercise you can work through yourself. There's an exercise on compassion called the baby chick exercise that I've popped up on there, which is about offering yourself the same kindness that you would as if you were holding a baby chick in your hands, you know, holding it tenderly and gently and without judgment and holding your own suffering in the same way as a that's a little meditation um obviously i have a book coming out as well there's a link on my website but um there's also that'll also be sort of launched in first of december that comes out so exciting and i can't i think I've, i've almost become detached from that like i finished writing it last december so and i've had editing a little bit of editing between now and then but it, I've opened it up recently and gone wow this is not too bad like who wrote this kind of feeling like it just feels like someone else's book now. it's real oh that's really so weird. exciting I know I think um I want my next book to be on the perfectionistic therapist or like carer because I think there's such a need for for us to look at ourselves um and yeah so I'd encourage you to go to my website I also if you are a a therapist or a psychologist I run trainings and consultations I do 
Um, I supervise other psychologists who do consultations as well, so or therapists, depending, they're not just psychologists. So you can reach out to me um, through my website for that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Amazing. So listeners, I'll put links to, um, to Jennifer's website and to some of these specific resources in the show notes so you can head there as well. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today and, you know, sharing your journey as well, because I think it is really important for us to understand that we all have our struggles along the way, and that's really relatable. So to, to know someone's gone before us, that they have experienced these perfectionistic tendencies and that they found a way through to creating and living a really beautiful and meaningful life, you know, found a way to drive the bus really effectively is really helpful. So thank you so much for being so open and generous in your wisdom today. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. What do you think? Do you think that you might be one of the perfectionistic people that that does struggle with these never get enough feelings? And maybe did you notice any short-term reinforcements that support your perfectionism in continuing and being maintained? I sincerely hope that this episode was helpful for you and that the passengers on a bus metaphor allowed you an opportunity to consider how how these experiences, you know, these thoughts, these feelings might be able to sit in the back as you move forward and live your best life, you know, a life of purpose, a life of meaning. And this passengers on a bus metaphor is actually one of the ones that I use and teach inside the Yoga Brain 101 program, which similarly is based on acceptance and commitment therapy, modern psychological skills, and actually integrates yoga. Just as a little heads up, if it is something you're curious about, if you are curious about the role of yoga and modern psychological skills in healing, in well-being, in moving forward in a purposeful direction, perhaps aligned with the new year and the energy that can come with that change as we move to 2020, I will be opening Yoga Brain 101 for enrollment then. So if you'd like to get on the wait list and hear about it, if you head to drcaitlin.com backslash yoga brain, you'll be able to join the wait list and be the first to know and get a little bit of a, um, a treat in, in that offering when it is available. Of course, the show notes as always are available at drcaitlin.com and there you'll find links to jennifer's website jenniferkemp.com as well as a link to the two teachers example so going back to click in and access that resource that we talked about here today may you be well may you be perfectly imperfect in the day ahead I wish you well and look forward to seeing you next week because we are back on a weekly release schedule for these episodes. So next Wellbeing Wednesday, Wisdom Wednesday, I will be jumping back into your earbuds if that feels helpful and helpful for you. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. 
please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for well-being is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.